0: our speaker for tonight, his name is Matt. Um, The way that tonight's going to work is he's going to give a presentation that's going to last maybe 30 to 35 minutes, and then we're going to have a Q&A portion that's going to last 25 to 30 more minutes. So when he's giving his presentation, really encourage you guys to think about great questions that you can ask him afterwards. So without further ado, let's welcome Matt. Thank you. Standing here is good. Everybody can see the screen? What, all right, let's, Oh, you're, you're kind of boned regardless, sorry. So, <laughs> so, I'm here to talk to everybody. First of all, thank you for having me. But I really wanted to cover gaming product management specifically and really how it differs from traditional software product management because it is indeed very different and an emphasis on mobile and Facebook games. So these are kind of the notorious free-to-play games everybody's familiar with. I'm sure a lot of you are playing them. Just a quick show of hands, how many of you guys have games that you play on your phone every day? Alright. Every hour? Okay, cool, awesome. So, this is my about me slide. So, these are pictures of all the games that I've worked on in my career so far. Just really quick disclaimer, I don't work on games anymore at the moment. Uh, I've taken a little break. I work at PlayStation for e-commerce actually. So, this is going to be covering my experience at my last two companies. But I really want to just emphasize that the opinions and the learnings from this deck are my own. They are not in any way representative of my company's opinions, previous, former, current, you know, all that stuff. So this is is all my interpretation of the industry, what I think you guys would potentially want to take and go and apply yourselves if you're interested in game product management. So I've done product management. I started actually on Facebook games back when that bubble was booming in about 2010. So I, my first company was Digital Chocolate. How many of you guys have heard of Digital Chocolate? Awesome. Yeah, so it was an old company. It was kind of like the first two mobile. They were making games on the flip phones back when those were a thing, but they kind of started to fade away as the smartphone started gaining popularity. So I moved to KickSci after that, which is where I primarily primarily worked on War Commander, which is like a Red Alert 2 style game adapted for the Facebook browser and I was the uh, product manager on that team working on all these kind of like new units for the game so I was like really fun and I'll talk about kind of like the ideology behind what goes into that in a bit. After that I got a taste for mobile working with uh, my former manager on Backyard Monsters Unleashed which was a, a small mobile game that they tried to take to market and I was just kind of witnessing the explosive growth of Clash of Clans, and I, I realized, wow, this is this is here to stay. Mobile games are going to eclipse everything else in the market, so it's time to get into the industry. So I went to Glue Mobile, and they really hired me because I'm a hardcore first-person shooter gamer. Like I, I love competing in them. How many people play Overwatch? All right, sweet. Yeah, so I, I love Overwatch to death. Play that almost every day. So they really liked my experience just being a gamer in general. So they brought me on and then I worked on about a handful of, you know, the glue titles there, working on iPhone and Android game product management, focusing on touchscreen. So I've identified these as what I think are the game product manager essentials. So I'm going to cover the background in terms of what I think it takes to make it as a games product manager. I'm talking about establishing the product vision, which I'm sure all of you guys are familiar with but applied to games. We're going to talk about game monetization and retention. So this is definitely the hot topic. This is a very important part of the the process because this is critical for all of you guys to get correct if you want your game to succeed. And then we're going to talk about A-B testing, data analysis, live operations management, and then finish off touching on game economy design. Cool. So for background, you know, a lot of people really think that you got to be a gamer, you know, died and true to make it in this industry. That will help you. Absolutely. In college, I played about six to eight hours a day of League of Legends, World of Warcraft, Counter-Strike, all the classics. Right. So I became an expert of the games, but you don't have to do that. What you need to do is really know what is fun for gamers. So you might have an investor or a company interviewing you asking, hey, why is Clash of Clans fun? What makes that a great game? And then you have to be able to answer why. So it's more about that. It Pretty much anything in product management, whether it's e-commerce, games, retail, is you have to be an expert in your field. You have to know why Amazon's so successful. You have to know why Supercell, Zynga, Machine Zone. Why are these household names now? You know, in 2010, Supercell was just coming out of Clash of Clans, so nobody knew who they were. But now I'm sure you guys got Battle Royale, Clash of Clans, Boom Beach. You know, these guys are here to stay. This is a, you know, Big business now. So once you know what's fun, that's great. But now it's about how do you make money off of that fun? You know, these games are free. So you're going to go and shop these games. You're actually going to go to, you know, ad agencies like Facebook, and you're going to pay to advertise on their platform. So you're actually paying to get installs. How do you make that money back? You have to know how to do that. I'll tell you how to do that. So product vision. This is essential for being a product manager. You have to be a good leader and lead your team to build the right things at the right time. So this really changes depending where your game is in its life cycle. So for me, I've had a unique experience because I've worked on games that are at various stages of the cycle. So you got pre-production, which is kind of like the concept phase where you're working with the game designers, the producers, really high-level execs to figure out kind of like, well, what's the game? What are we going to build? Is it going to be a base builder? Is it going to be a puzzle game? Is it going to be a first-person shooter? That's like very high level, right? Then once you have the genre, Then you get into the production side of things and you're just thinking about, okay, so if it's a shooter, we're probably going to want a weapon system. What's that going to look like? Okay, we're going to want tournaments. All right, cool, we want PvP, right? You start getting down to the details. And then once your game is live, then you're looking at the metrics and you're saying, okay, we have a huge drop off at this day in the progression. Let's see what's going on. What are players doing? And you might find that they need some new content. They need to have an adjustment depending on what your gameplay systems currently model. So it really changes, and and it's your job to be the champion of pushing the right ideas at the right time. So why you want to build it. So being a game product manager is tricky because you're going up against a lot of industry veterans from AAA that have been doing this stuff gut feel for years. You know, people on Diablo 2 didn't really have data to back up why Diablo 2 was going to be good, but, you know, they knew what was fun and they built a game around it. Unfortunately, we live in a time now where you got to really have data to back up your gut. I mean, everybody wants to be right. People that play the games just know. Like, you, sometimes you get that feeling, like, oh man, I just know this is going to be fun. But you got to back it up with data. You got to have that reason. You can, you know, use retention metrics to say people that engage with these specific gameplay loops that are so fun, like PvP, they stick around so much more than people that don't. You can justify building the things you want to build using data. And how are you going to execute it? So. How many of you guys in here communicate with engineers on a daily basis? And I would assume that all of you guys are familiar with things taking time to build, and then you have to go to the project management team and prioritize the roadmap. And that's just a big part of the game. And, and like games, you know, you, in games you, you have to know how you're gonna execute it. And you have to know how to prioritize it. So you might have the coolest tournaments feature PVP ever. Like the coolest feature that's ever been done. But if it's gonna take three years to execute, you might want to reconsider if your game's just trying to get out the door. You might want to put that on the backlog for later and think of something you can do now. So monetization. This is probably the craziest one that I've had experiences with because I'm a huge whale. Like, how many of you guys are whales in the room? Who spends money on these games? Only two people, three people? Okay, so i spent spent $1,000 in League of Legends, probably about $2,000 in Counter-Strike, and Overwatch only got about 400 out of me, but the reason behind these things is monetization. So you have to be the expert. You don't have to pay the money yourself like I did. I kind of learned the sucker's way, right? I I was, like, constantly engaging with these systems before I started to research them and realize why they're getting me, my personality type, right? But you have to know why these gotcha mechanics work. Have you guys heard of gotcha? All right, great. So if you don't know what that is, Google it, G-A-C-H-A, It's a uh, Japanese kind of game mechanic that a lot of these companies have started to integrate into their gameplay systems on their loot tables to to make things take longer to acquire. So how many of you guys know uh, League of Legends? Who played League of Legends in like 2012, 2013? So that was when they only had the direct skin purchase stuff. So, you know, classic retail, you go into the store, you're like, sweet, got that action figure I wanted, here's five bucks and I'm gone. 2017 in a game, almost every game these days, including games like Overwatch, PUBG, you have to spin mystery boxes to get what you want. It's becoming a staple of monetization in games. You have to have cool ass content behind mystery boxes because just the basic foundation business model is I could give you five bucks for what I really want, or I could spin this mystery box 50 times at five bucks a spin, give you that money. it's It's a manipulation tactic, but at the same time, it's proven to work. And you see a lot of this stuff coming into even like retail and toys. Like have you guys seen those like little kind of packages that have you know chances to win specific characters? Like I just bought this alien vs. Predator one and, and it said I had a one in seventy-two chance to get the pred alien. And I was like, oh man, I gotta take that chance. Versus <laughs> just 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 buying it, right? So mystery boxes, huge and knowing how to execute them in your game. So for example, when I was working on my games, I actually had to define what was in the mystery box, what the drop percentages were, kind of own that whole space. So in addition to mystery boxes, there's other monetization techniques that you need to know that make money. So these are things I'll talk about later in the presentation that kind of encapsulate live ops events, but these are things kind of like sales, right? So pretty straightforward. But again, you know, learn from the best. So all this information that I'm presenting to you is out there. It's public information. You, know, you can go and download all the best games right now, all the top grossing games in the top 100, and just play them and just really dissect why that works. I mean, Game of War was always one that we kept coming back to because and Game of War fans, Game of War players, cool. So a lot of people at my previous companies are like, this game just isn't fun. Like, what the heck is the deal? Why is it making so much money? But in reality, if you look at their monetization systems, they're so deeply integrated with social mechanics. So I can gift you guys things, you can gift me things. It creates this kind of social behavior. So these are examples of really powerful monetization techniques that you can just go and learn about today. You can go and download those games and get get into it. Now the other one is retention. So this one is absolutely critical. So if you think about it like this, it, We'll talk about this more in the data analysis section, but essentially when somebody installs your game, that is their day zero. The first time they booted up. And for the next X days, you're gonna lose a certain amount of people every single day for no particular reason. I mean, we're all busy people, right? I mean, uh, let's just say, how many people have two games on their phone right now? Okay, three games? Four? So what I'm trying to get at here is that there's multiple options out there right? You don't have to be stuck to any specific game. A game really has to wow you from the moment that you install it and you get past that tutorial or else you're gone. And even in the tutorial, you know, there's going to be drop off. This is something that we'll talk about AB testing in a second, but getting a good tutorial is essential and retention in particular. You need to be the expert. How do you get people to come back? Are you going to leverage really quality gameplay mechanics to get them back? Are you going to rely on your game being a good game? Or are you going to employ some of these things like, how many of you guys have played Heroes Charge? This is one of my favorites when I used to play mobile games. No Heroes Charge players. So this game gave you rewards every single day you came back. And then kind of the classic, the more you come back, the better your rewards get. And then if you were to complete one of these sign-in rewards, it would unlock a new set of rewards. And essentially they're rewarding you with content to come back. So I might not have all day to play Heroes Charge, But I can come back and get my reward, might spend if it puts me over the threshold to progress in a certain gameplay loop. So this is just an example. And then uh, Marvel Future Fight, which is also an awesome game I used to play, they had the same kind of system. So giving people rewards to come back and play your game is a good step in that direction to keep people coming back. So A-B testing, I'm sure you guys are very familiar with this. But what I really want to emphasize with this is that in the game's development phase treat A-B testing like its own feature. Like really try and get it into your game at the out, at, like before your game is launched because you always want to be testing. So this is stuff like tutorial. I, you know, I just mentioned it, but tutorials are tricky. Do you have 10 steps or do you have one? Do you have 15 steps that are super handholder? do you have three that are just kind of more free-form and let the player have a lot of freedom? You know, these are questions that are going to vary game to game and there's no right answer. So this changes game to game, company to company. But you want to build the infrastructure so you can do this kind of stuff. And you know, one, one other potential is like if you have a like a role-playing game or a game that requires some sort of progression. You know, you want to test the difficulty because I might think it's really easy, but I'm a gamer. You know, what does my dad think? What, what, what's the demographic going to think? You got to really think about different performances, different performances based on different cohorts. So A/B testing is absolutely critical. I used to run multiple A-B testing roadmaps actually. So like in addition to my feature set, it would be an A-B testing roadmap where I'd have to essentially tell engineers and producers, hey, this is what I wanna test and why. And then reporting the findings. So I'm sure everybody in here has stakeholders that they have to keep happy. So this one is essentially writing really digestible emails or PowerPoints to really convey the findings. And also to the people that, because for me, I was actually a consultant at my last job, so I was not the product owner. It's a, a lot of people assume that the product manager is the product owner who's responsible for the roadmap, but in some companies, that's just not the case. So if you are a more support role, you have to really be good at disseminating your findings out to the stakeholder group at large to push the right features into development, because otherwise, you know, you might fall flat if somebody's just decision kind of outweighs you. So you really want to have the ammo, so to speak. So running an A-B test, properly communicating it out, hugely important. So data analysis. So this is something that I actually picked up at my last job that was, it was kind of becoming apparent to me that a games product manager is becoming a data analyst as well. So in the traditional sense, data analysis was done by data scientists. And you know, at a company like, like Sony, we do have a big data science team. I'm still doing a lot of data analysis because I really like it, but we do have a data science team that supports us. But For games companies, let's talk much smaller, you know, (laughs) Sony's a big company, but we're talking game companies now, and we're talking companies that are kind of scrapping, like games have a few big players, and if you're not one of those big players, you're going to have to put on a lot of different hats as a game product manager. One of those is data analysis. So I wanted to cover kind of like the core KPIs that I think are absolutely critical to measure in terms of, let's say you have a beta and then you go live and then you want to compare your beta to live these are the kpis that i think you should just stack up and just have you know like a stack line and be like beta versus live you can look at lifetime value so this is essentially how much money are your customers worth by day so when somebody installs a game over time how does their value increase you you want to know that so then when you're working with your a user acquisition team you can properly kind of balance the cost per install versus the lifetime value conversion so this one pretty self-explanatory but essentially how many people are converting into spenders in your game so this one's a pretty pretty hard one to change unless your game is magnificent but it's it's something that you really need to keep in mind you know as you add these new features maybe it's player versus player, or something that that you believe is going to increase monetization, how does it impact conversion? Because if your goal is to increase monetization, you want to touch these metrics, right? So average revenue per paying user. This one I prefer to use over average revenue per user just because this is looking at the valuable, in my opinion, spenders are the most valuable. So looking at their trended behavior and how much the spenders are worth over a period of time is really important. And then we got spender retention and non-spender retention. So for example, if your game got featuring on Apple, you might see a ton of organic traffic come in, but they're all pretty low quality. So it might make your regular retention drop, but your spender retention, spenders are different. Obviously they're more hyper engaged. You could track that better and have a more kind of essentially normalized view over how the health of your economy is doing in the game. So after you've looked at the high level, then it's time to look at the feature-specific data. And what I mean by this is that every big release that your game will do is going to feature something new. And you really need to dive into how people are actually using that. And people that use that feature or that feature set versus people who don't. And just stack up these KPIs again. Just really see, like, okay, somebody who's into this new tournament's PvP feature, how do they compare to somebody who's not? And really just start to prove, this is where you can really start to Get down and dirty into how did your feature grow the business or potentially harm the business? You know, we don't always have wins. I've, I've worked on a lot of flops, so there's that. You know, not everything that you do is going to be this big success, but looking at, it at the feature specific level is really important. So, for example, I keep talking about this tournament thing. We could look at okay, how many people are playing tournaments out of the percent total player population? We start there. It's like, oh wow, it's only five percent. That's kind of weak, right? It's like, all right, we might want to get we put all this effort into this feature, we want to get more people into it, Let's we'll start thinking about increasing engagement, right? Because we see that people that engage with it have a much higher lifetime value than people who don't. So we need to get more people into this funnel. It's kind of conversations like that start happening. So to do all this measurement, you got to become a master of Excel. Not super hard. I can do it. You can do it. So I was nobody in Excel in 2014, and now I'd like to consider myself to be very proficient with it. I use it all the time to populate my PowerPoints. But essentially, this is pivot tables. This is pulling raw data from either your data scientist team who's running SQL into Excel and modeling it out or just plotting data from like a, like a Tableau or a Contagion or an Adobe Analytics. But the one thing I really want to touch on is that I've noticed that SQL is becoming mandatory for games product managers. So this is essentially in a world where you have a very slim kind of tech stack and you need to pull the data, but you don't have a tableau, you don't have you know these third-party data companies that are giving you this data, you essentially have to go get it yourself using like Redshift, and you have to know how to use that database to give you the data that you need to run these analyses that inform future decisions. So I don't know SQL. I, I, that's not what interests me, but that's just something that I noticed as becoming on the requirements as we started to hire new PMs, like senior PMs and stuff. So. If I went back into games, I would definitely teach myself SQL for sure. And then I, I kept talking about this before, but you know, you want to present your findings. So really, kind of working on your, your public speaking is really important. You know, being able to walk into a conference room with c level people and talk about how your feature did—that's that, really important. So that was something that that was really fun for me to to learn because I'm an introvert, and you know, public speaking was not an easy thing. To, for me to tackle, but, you know, more time under tension and you'll, you'll get there. So live operations management. So how many people in here are familiar with that phrase at all? Live operations management for games. Cool. So handful. So just so what this is for the rest of the room is essentially your game is going to be running these events, whether it's sales. So just a, a good example of uh, Overwatch, they do this thing every month or two where they release a handful of new exclusive skins into the game and they put it behind a mystery box that's available for like 7 to 14 days and you can also buy it with huge amounts of their soft currency. So these are what I'm calling like limited time like content events essentially where they put this cool stuff in the game for a limited amount of time and you can only get it for that limited amount of time and you have to engage with some sort of monetization mechanic to get it. So that all wraps up into the umbrella of live operations management. And there's actually been a shift in games where they've broken that out of the product manager role to an extent at some companies. Like I'm pretty sure at Machine Zone and maybe Gree, like they have a live operations team and their whole job is to essentially do product management for live operations. So it's a huge thing. I mean, at my last job, this took up like probably 40% of my time, like setting up, like I had this one game that every weekend it ran like four of those. And I had to go into these Excel sheets that are being, you know, run by the by the engineering teams and populate all the weapons that are going to be on sale. All like, it's just it's nauseating if you don't like that stuff. I didn't like it, but you know, it's all about learning what you like, right? And uh, so that's why I kind of talk about what each one of these is. So I mentioned limited time content. So a spending event. This one, when I, you know, found out about it, this one's pretty great. This one, essentially, as a customer spends premium currency. So everybody here knows what premium currency is versus soft currency, right? Okay, great. No, you don't? Okay, so soft currency is the currency that you get just by playing the game in terms of it's not tied to any sort of money. But in most cases, you can pay money to bypass any sort of cost. So, like, let's see, Clash of Clans, you can pay to, like, go with the elixir route but like the crystals they give you a little trickle like if you buy the rocks or like you open up the rocks clear the trees they give you a little bit of trickle of hard currency but in reality you really got to be spending the benjamins to be getting the crystals so that's hard currency so crystals hard currency then like the oil the gold that's like the soft currency so every game kind of has this so in league of legends like this currency right here the, the riot points that's hard currency and then the ip i think it's called is the soft currency so in a spending event The company actually gives the customer prizes for spending hard currency at certain checkpoints. So you might have like a piece of content at five bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, all the way up to like 250 bucks. And surprisingly enough, these work like a charm. So highly encourage them. But again, content is absolutely king. You can't have any of these without really cool things. So, I mean, I just picked up this game Path of Exile and they got all these cool wings and stuff behind their, their mystery boxes. And I'm like, that is hot. I'm probably going to spend on that, right? So it's like, if they didn't have that, if they had, like, you know, cloth, chair, like, that that wouldn't be cool. But, like I said, content's king. Exclusive mystery boxes, we talked about this, but just to, re, you know, recap, essentially, you can only get that cool content from this mystery box. You can, you just have to keep spinning it. It's another effective one. Fusion events. So, in a lot of the kind of Asian RPG-style games that are starting to gain popularity over here, like, uh... Puzzles and Dragons, you know, you you can, like, fuse guys and level them up and, you know, take essentially trash resources from the mystery box and level people up really quickly and, you know, doing an event around that to make a certain archetype in the game. So in Puzzles and Dragons, they got, you know, fire, earth, water, lightning. Maybe they have a lightning event, fusion event. You get double XP for fusing the lightning guys. So it encourages you to keep spending, right? You want to keep getting the mystery boxes. You want to keep getting the lightning guys. Keep fusing them up and have a good time spending money so the double xp events similar vein i loved them in call of duty you know call of duty was one of my classics and, and whenever they had double xp weekend i just went crazy play like 12 hours a day just because it's so engaging for the customer who's used to being in a rut so most customers are just like head against the wall like oh my god that upgrade's taking me 14 days in clash of clans like this sucks you know damn i want to play my game Double XP just kind of gets them back in like that, oh my god, I can progress phase. Like, oh, this is so fun. This is like limited time. I'm going to play a lot. And in the process of playing, if you have the customer there, they're more likely to spend. Just nature of just being in the store, right? Because these games often are like stores. And then, you know, tournaments is a big one. Getting people to PVP against each other. Social is huge. Getting people to play with their friends, play against people, communicate. This is what really builds that long-term retention. I mean, Alliances and Clash of Clans is why my dad has been playing it since 2012 when I showed him initially. My mom doesn't like me for that. But <laughs> So last but not least, so game economy design. I was really surprised that this was becoming something that product owns because I think this is what system game designers should be doing. But like I was saying, you know, companies are getting smaller and smaller. And you know, as that happens, these roles are starting to become more and more the job of the product manager to take on. So I mentioned earlier, you know, some of these upgrades in Clash of Clans take 14 days. You guys are familiar with really long upgrade times, being frustrated, sucks. So that's being defined by a product manager. In their case, since they're machine zone, probably like some crazy economist guy or girl, but in most, you know, smaller game companies, it's being defined by the product manager. So you, as a product manager, are essentially going through each one of these buildings And for each level, defining how much soft currency and, you know, and hard currency and time is it going to take to build all this stuff. And this this isn't limited just to base builder tower defense games, you know, even in a shooter. Like, if you have a weapon and it's going to cost to upgrade, that's you. You know, you're figuring out, okay, you know, this weapon has six slots and the first level I want it to take a week. So then you have to back calculate how many resources that's going to take, how much time that's going to take for the customer to essentially hit that week, right? And why is this so important is because a lot of these games, you know, the budget's limited, time's limited, content's limited. You essentially want to get something really high quality out there immediately, but you don't want people to finish it in three days because then when they finish it, they're playing something else. They're going back to their game of war, their, their Clash of Clans, all that. So you want to have a delicate balance of a game that isn't something so fast you can just blow through it, but it's not so grindy that it just it's just not fun to play at all. So I don't, no one really has the answer for this, but this is something I just wanted to bring to your attention as becoming more and more of a thing. So this is from the Clash of Clans wiki. So you could go on and just kind of take a distribution curve tonight if you wanted about what these levels are. But this is becoming more and more a job of the product manager. In conclusion, game product manager essentials. So we've talked about the background. It's less about being a gamer, but being a gamer will help you because it helps you become an expert. So you want to become the expert of what you're doing. So knowing why the games are fun, why they are built, why they make money. We talked about establishing a product vision. so it's essentially using data to inform your decisions, communicated properly to stakeholders. We talked about monetization. We talked about some things that you know make a lot of money, so mystery boxes. We talked about retention, you know what it is, keep people coming back. We talked about the kind of daily rewards thing is like a first step in that direction. We talked about A/B testing. You know, really thinking about that as a feature, building it into your tech stack early on, so you have the ability to test things like your tutorial or your game's difficulty. And we talked about data analysis. We covered the the five or so KPIs and talked about kind of you know becoming adept at using Excel and you know SQL becoming more and more of a of a mandatory thing for games. And we just talked about lab operations management. So essentially, what these events are, how they run, how to set them up. And then we wrapped with the lovely game economy design, where you get to make people wait 14 days for upgrades. So that's all I had prepared, and now I'd love to take any questions that you have. Green actually, shirt. Yeah, I was actually a game designer on Vampire Monsters Unleashed. You serious? Yeah. No way. Yeah, on there. Okay. That's awesome. Did you work with Travis? Uh, yeah. Okay, right, cool. So that was the former manager I talked about. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like cool. So what kind of advice would you have for someone who's from to Definitely, how's your data analysis? Uh, we really that yet. We're really, really Yep, so I would definitely, we could talk after this you know, more in depth, but just from a high level data analysis, essentially proving with numbers, whether, it, you know, you don't have the data, right? You're like brand new. So the way you get that data is, uh, you know, you look at competitors and you start making your own data. You start looking at, okay, I've looked at 12 games. How many of them have this feature? You know, that's a percentage right there. You know, you can make your own data using competitive analysis at the pre-production stage, which is really critical because I talk about having all this data. You know, data is a luxury. You know, like like in your world, I don't know if they're even building the tech stack to have proper data support. That might not even be a thing. Right oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great, great. So essentially, knowing how to use the data that's being built to help inform your stakeholders about you know what you think the roadmap should be—that's what it's all about. Cool. Next question. So, can you speak more to uh, how PMs interact with PMs on a daily or weekly basis, and what made you um, decide to be PM as opposed to being a PM? Cool. So we'll start with that part. So I cannot. Hey. Oh, sorry. Okay. So the first. Sorry. Damn. Uh, that question. Why do I want to be a PM versus a game dev? And then, sorry, what was the first part of that? Uh, can you just speak to like, how PMs and game devs like, would interact on like, a weekly Got interface. it. Yeah, okay, how they interact. So how many of you guys are familiar with agile development? I expect almost the entire room to raise their hand. So I talked to engineers. I, I strongly believe that the best connection you can make with anybody in your office is a face-to-face interaction, and a step up from that is establishing some sort of authentic connection with that person so that they remember you and they like you. So for example, I just played uh, 45 minutes of ping pong today with various product owners that I need stuff from in the upcoming (laughs) thing, right? So this is building relationships for people that, you know, as a product person, you're asking for stuff to be done. You know, you're not actually in the weeds coding. So you're kind of like eye in the sky a little bit like, hey, so is that thing done yet? And it's like, oh man, like nobody wants that. So Talk to them all the time. Really don't be hiding behind your Slack. That's like the worst possible thing you can do. Somebody has a question, just walk up to their desk and say, hey, what's up? Yeah, okay, yeah, let's talk it. Let's talk it out. You want to grab a meeting room? Let's do this. You know, so always, always like frequent contact. So a lot of companies have stand-ups, obviously. So go to all the stand-ups, meet everybody, first name basis. Just really get to know everybody. And for me, I like I don't know how to program very well at all. And then I, all I did in college, really, I was a communication major, so I learned how to write really well. And then I played games. Uh, I, I was like the president of the, like the gamers club. Like, this hardcore, like hardcore, man, hardcore gamer. And uh, I just knew that I wanted to do something in games. And my interview for product manager was actually hilarious because I, I started as a game design intern and my interview for product manager went like this. I was like, what do you want to do, Matt? And I was like, hmm, I want to be a producer, but I also like game design and they were like, product manager. And I was like, cool, I'll take it. So <laughs> then I, just, I, I fell into this, and then I, I've just kind of been growing along with the industry, and realized that this is definitely where I want to stay for now. Awesome. Thank you. Any other questions? So you Blue shirt. AB testing being really important at every stage. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the question was about the A-B testing and how do you build an A-B testing roadmap? So essentially that's directly related to your feature roadmap. So as new features are coming out, you want to start thinking about, okay, what new features are we going to be releasing that are behind an A-B test? Because it's a little bit trickier for like a social game where everybody's going to be talking to each other because you can't have it like you have the cool new tournaments thing and you don't. Like That would never work. But there are ways to finesse it in terms of, you know, you look at what's what's upcoming and you want to essentially develop it in a way that it can be A-B a- tested. So, you know, maybe some upgrades cost a certain amount more for group A than B. But essentially look at your current feature roadmap and then figure out if it's A-B testable and just have them run in parallel. So and, and essentially depends on the cycle of the game as well. So like live ops, that's definitely how it goes. But like pre-production, you really want to be thinking about almost every single funnel in the game, if it can be A-B tested or not. Cool like the product managers were in charge of like maximizing the revenue funnel, Yep. but a lot of times like maximizing the revenue isn't fun, like it doesn't make it <laughs> a fun game outfit yes but like, you talk about how you, you know, like data doesn't lie yeah and you're trying to maximize revenue but how do you balance that against keeping the game fun and keeping people playing yeah so that's uh, that I mean I'll give you my opinion, I don't have the right answer, that's like that's the classic dilemma, by the way. So, you know, when I was working in games, there's the right option for, for for the data. You know, this will make more money, but Zynga knows that impacts retention really heavily. So there is a balance. And there's also, you know, what I really learned is, you know, we did a lot of uh, user testing and we, ha- we had a lot of, I think the most successful game I ever worked on, I was really in close contact with a lot of the whales in the game because I really wanted to have, kind of the the grassroots like okay we're adding a lot of stuff how's it going because like I said it's it, the games people come to games as an entertainment you know they don't want to be you know messed with really they just want to have their fun right so many options these days which is great for us as a consumer you know everyone's competing against each other we're gonna get some really good stuff but in a world where you know fun and monetization don't always go hand in hand it's really hard and, and for free to play, it really depends on your business stakeholders goals. You know, like a lot of these games like Clash of Clans do, you know, like these really cool events where they give a lot back to the customers. Like a lot of HC. You know, give a lot of HC out in these like Christmas boxes or something. You know, give them something back. That's totally okay once in a while because you're taking a lot from them. <laughs> so it's this kind of give and take, push and pull. Audience how, how to do soft launch. Sure, so I've only, so the question was about soft launches and you know, how to manage them as a product manager. So I've, by soft launch, you mean beta? Uh, maybe. I mean, uh, with, with the new uh, set of features that uh, Android and iOS is revealing, there's uh, uh, pre-meta phase. Uh, I don't okay. Know what they call it, but you can you launch early access. Like a so small, small deal launch? Okay, yeah, yeah, so cool. So, I've been a part of several of those, and essentially we have the game as is. Kind of like this would go out to everybody tomorrow if the metrics said great, but more often than not, and it comes back to the data analysis. Like in terms of like the the, the cohort size, that's dependent on your user acquisition budget, so that's going to fluctuate every single time. So, do you have a marketing team that you work with? Um, yeah, no, no, I, I work in a very different company. Oh, okay, okay. So what I was going to say is that essentially there's a marketing team that's gonna give you a certain amount of budget to work with. And then based on that, you're gonna kind of coordinate your soft launches because you might have multiple. I've worked on a game that had multiple soft launches. And you kinda wanna allocate that out to have kind of like at least statistical significance is what I'm looking for. So that you're looking at enough data in each of the regions that you care about and start there. So once you have that distribution made, you're really gonna wanna start thinking about looking at those those KPIs I was talking about, and then you break it out by feature because to look at by region, by locale, how are people interacting with your game, and then adjusting accordingly. So if all the metrics are down in the dumps, something's wrong, and you got to fix it. Cool. All right, we got glasses. Oh, both glasses. I think he was first with the with the scarf. Sorry. So the question, I might have to have the question repeated, but what I got from the question was, new feature release, how do we assess if it's a design issue or, sorry, what was the second part of that? Uh, or people are actually not interested in it. That's why you do testing, right? You want to see if there is massive demand behind a certain Exactly for uh, a new feature or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, like, an obvious example would be, uh, a lot of times, I realize that a certain feature, yep. Or was kind of that so you would do AD testing and fail, but it wasn't. It wouldn't be an indication of low interest in that feature. Grade. Interesting. Yeah. So the question is kind of I'm going to summarize, but it's like feature awareness almost. It's like you add something new to the game. How do you get people to see it? You know, a, a lot of these games just slide these new things in, and unless you're an avid player and you read the patch notes, you're just going to completely miss it. So in that case, you really have to think about the new feature in terms of who are you targeting. So you release this new feature for for a specific reason, but which part of your player base are you targeting? Is it new players, you know, two days in, 40 days in? And then you have to think about strategic ways to inform that player that there's something new to interact with. So something like a pop-up, you know, you reach a certain progression point. Oh, here's the new content, have to engage with it. Stuff like that put that behind the A-B test. But it really, fundamentally, it comes down to looking at what player base you want to target and then informing them via some sort of modal for games specifically, yeah. Kind of like an update pop-up. I don't know. Cool. Yes. Sure. So the question is, is, you know, how the the flops that I mentioned, you know, how how to how to handle it, how to recover from it, how to make teams handle it. Yeah. So it sucks. Just flat out. You know, You, you just put a bunch of time into something. You know, I told you guys I worked on new units. So like I'd say about half the new units I made were just people did not like them. So it was like, oh, man, like that's just crushing. You put all this energy behind something and it just falls flat happens, you know. The more that happens to you, the more you're just gonna understand that you just gotta be as objective as possible with it. You gotta really look into the data as to why it flopped. For example, you know, I won't mention specifics here, but like one of the new units I worked on, like one of the reasons that it was flopping is because it was getting killed so quickly. Like people just couldn't get into battle, it was just getting shredded. So it was like, okay, like for the team, you know, we have a game design team, production team. It's kind of like, okay, we need to, this is a game balance issue. So we've identified through the data, this is a game balance issue. Let's try increasing the health of this unit, right? We'll try increasing the range. We'll try changing its, we have to essentially change the feature to work and then test it again. Because a new feature release is almost like a test in itself. You put all this time and energy into something you release to the public and then it's like, how's it going to work? You don't know. You You don't have the crystal ball. So failure is really just part of the process to get to that point where you know, you're iterating so that, you know, you're working with a team to iterate on the release and to build on the functionality that you've already created. Because nothing truly is a failure if you can learn from it. I mean, it's pretty buzzwordy, but it's just true. Like, you know, I have the data now to know that these types of things don't work. And that's something no one can take away from me or the teams that I was on. And they all have that knowledge going into their next roles or even their current role. So it's failure is good. And then once you can kind of spin that, that failure is good and it's Okay. Which is much easier for the team than like C-suite, because <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> I haven't, don't have an answer for you there, but you'll be okay. You developing, you developing what? Developing before. before. Sure. So the question was developing vision before you launch a product. So this really comes down to working with the kind of C-suite and really high-level product design people to establish. What do you want the game to be? Because all games have some similarities, and they all start somewhere. And a lot of these games are like the way that they used to get pitched is like it's Clash of Clans but with this, or it's like it's you know uh, game of war but with with this. So you know they're talking about whole core gameplay loops here. So that's that's something that you could really kind of think about as a product person. Be like, okay, if somebody says I want a game of war, but I want it with anime characters, and I want Goku and Vegeta to fight. <laughs> so you have to know that I want like a complete, comprehensive set of like bases and you know upgrades and units, and so that's kind of where to start because games, unless you're really trying to like be unique and, and something that's never been done before, you know some of these like you know PUBG, H1Z1 games that have been coming out in the past couple of years, you know they started with the fact that shooting FPSs and third person over the shoulders, you know, those are fun. But how, how do we spin it? How do we make it different? And that's where it gets really exciting. And then you just kind of sit in a really cool brainstorming session with a lot of creative people. And, and you get behind a whiteboard and really good stuff happens. But it all starts with knowing every single genre. So that's what I would say is just really be an expert on all the big players and all the big genres. Because a lot of cross-pollination is healthy for games in general. You know, A lot of shooter games can have RPG elements. And a lot of RPG elements can have shooter elements. Cool. How do you prioritize features uh, in (laughs) pre-production? That's gonna so the question was, how do you prioritize features in pre-production? So it depends on who's on the team. If it's a bunch of team of product people or if it's like one product person, a bunch of designers and a producer. So what generally happens in the latter is that you'll be like, What about this monetization thing? Huh? We're gonna make the money. And they're like, No, we need to have the fun gameplay stuff now. And it's like, okay, well we could have the coolest game ever. You know, ping pong is pretty cool, but like how are you going to monetize that? So, that being said, it really comes down to the culture. So, in a data-driven, you know, PM culture, you might have the other side, which is too much monetization. You're going to have all these great monetization loops, but no fun. So, essentially, you have to find the balance. Like, what's the core game mechanic that you guys are the building around and then get that done because that's people got to play something. They're not going to go play Mystery Box Spinner 4000. So, then when you get that, then it's like, okay, we got the core gameplay loop. We can, you know, put we can stifle progression within that, and now we can add monetization to make this profitable, and then focus on bigger, longer-term things that are maybe for gameplay. You know, if you're developing like an RPG, it's like get the first act down, monetize the first act, get that progression in place, and then focus on act two, and then focus on some, you know, maybe some spending events. Cool. So sorry, blue hat, you had a question for a while. Sorry. Yep. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yep. Sure. I think about I'm is because when I think about young, um, from your perspective, it's, you, that, you're, you're, you know, average um, yes. company, yep. So I just wonder like how it's actually, uh, so the question was about transitioning from games to e-commerce. Like I said, I work at Sony now. I do e-commerce. I'm less focusing on these game mechanics, focusing on other things. But the transition is pretty difficult, actually. So, you know, I come from a very fast-paced world uh, doing releases every week, maybe three to five releases a week. Like on my first game, War Commander, I was doing three to five a week. That's pretty tough. Now I'm doing like one, one. Uh, let's call it, say once every six months. So it's much slower. It requires a lot more attention to detail, and it requires me learning a whole new industry. So now I have to become an expert on e-commerce. And instead of being like, Game of Thrones, not Game of Thrones, uh, a Clash of Clans. like, why is Clash of Clans cool? It's like, why is Amazon cool? You know, it's like just taking that same vein of like being an expert and just shifting it over to this industry and shifting it over to that one. Because that's what product people are. You know, game designers, they're going to stay in games unless they want to make a drastic swap or maybe transition to product. But like a product person going from one product company to another, there's enough parallels and overlaps between software product management in general that the core skill set will remain the same. But the competency in becoming an expert is a real challenge. It takes a lot of dedication and time. Cool. Sorry, here's the verse. So regarding the terms like esports, console gaming, mobile gaming, is there overlap between those? Meaning like. Super Smash or FIFA, can those be considered esports if they're in a tournament setting? So, the question is about esports, console games, and mobile games, and whether or not there's any cross-pollination. And, hell yeah, there's cross-pollination. So, like, Overwatch, FIFA, it, they have a huge esports leagues, And, you know, Overwatch itself has an Overwatch league coming out later this year. You know, that's that's a game that's considered you know super casual. There's like an arcade mode. There's a ranked mode. There's a you know esports mode or whatever. So these games should have elements that cater to every single demo because otherwise you're leaving people out to dry. Like for me, huge esports enthusiast, but I still play PUBG because it it's like super casual, super fun. And then there's also like esports happening on the side over here. Cool. So what do you think, how do you divide your resources when you, you know, when you, like you say, you go to the new product life cycle, you have to learn a lot of things. How do you divide it? Like, how, like, how many times, like, can you share a little bit of So the question was about dividing resources when essentially transitioning to, to new products. Yes. So that's a hard one. I, For me personally, the class, everyone will tell you it's like water out of a fire hose. And that's a good expression because that's exactly what it is. So you're sitting there. Everybody's kind of counting on you on day one to contribute. And you have to essentially be able to contribute really quickly. So it's learning from your environment. So essentially, who's, who's your team? So you're going to come into a new team. It's like, okay, who is everybody? What are they all good at? What, how do I fit into this team? How, what do I bring to the table? What value am I going to add? You find that out first. You, you get pretty good at it. And then, you know, on your BART rides or your buses, you're looking at like all these kind of news articles about your industry. Like, oh, wow, I didn't know that Best Buy was doing that. Or, you know, I didn't know that Xbox had that coming. Like, oh, cool. So there's a lot of supplemental research you got to do in addition to your job. So when I'm at my office, it's work, work, work. And then when I'm outside the office, it's time to research and, you know, any sort of like supplemental reading I need to do. And then incorporating that into your kind of routine so it doesn't feel like a job. So it just feels kind of like, oh, yeah, I just want to keep up to date with stuff and be proficient and be able to talk about my industry. That's something that we all should aspire to be because essentially people are coming to you as a product manager knowing that you're the expert. Another one. Yeah. Uh, Why do you think Supercell succeeded so much without a lot of retention mechanics and sales? Uh, They only recently started doing some of those because they realized they could make more money than they were already making. Yep. So the question was about Supercell and why they're so good. So they were really early to market with a proven model that is just died. And, you know, it's like tried and true. It's just a really classic RTS that's very casual. It can be very hardcore. And it's just there. And it has the game economy. So, you know, going back to, to this, it has this. They, they launched with this. You know, this isn't something that they added. This is like a top tier progression system that really kept a lot of people just Still engaged, and you know, I told you guys my dad's been playing for you know five plus years. That's that's incredible. Like I've only played a couple of games in my whole life past five years, and the fact that Clash of Clans is getting up there for him, I was like, wow, that's a real testament to how they do it. So, like you said, you know, like all things, you know, people are transitioning off of that. They had to add those retention mechanics to keep people there. You know, they they added the the new double base thing because they realized that people were farming these bases, getting loot for free, and then the game became pretty stale for a lot of the upper-end people, and, you know, my dad was telling me he started using the game for chat, and, you know, he he didn't even really... Because he has his buddies, right? He made the friends. So, you know, this social stuff. You make friends online. Some of my best friends are from Halo Reach back in 2010, so, you know, these are, like, lifelong connections that people still want to be a part of, and those are never going to change, but the gameplay, if it's just that bad, you know, they're going to leave, so... Supercell Clash of Clans added that second base thing. And, and like, it, it, App Annie is a, is a really good website. You guys should check it out. I don't have access anymore, but when I was checking it, I was always keeping tabs on the big, the big, you know, boys and girls of the industry and looking at like, oh man, like, look at that update. It just went up to the right as everybody would love to see with their KPIs. And Clash of Clans is a perfect example of like, whenever they do an update, it's just so good. And everyone's just like, oh man, like, why couldn't we do that? But they just, Keep hitting it out of the park because their core game is so good, and they know how to do fun at Supercell. Any other questions? So, Can you, uh, talk a little bit about uh, making games that both guys and like, kind of gender Yeah, sure. So the question is about making g- games for both genders. So, ooh, I don't have too much experience with this, but I, I grew up in the Bay Area, very left, so I never really kept gender in mind with my games, but there are some games I worked on where I just knew they were for guys, like War Commanders, like, totally for guys. But there are girls that play, you know. I don't think the game design really should change all that much. Like, fun is fun for anybody. You know, it. well, people are not going to like everything, but what I'm trying to say is that I don't think it's as big of an issue unless your branding is, like... It's going to be really hard to brand, like, a if you had a Barbie IP, you know, like, okay, like, if we... If for some reason your goal is to get more male audience in your Barbie IP, it would be pretty hard. But if you're kind of more agnostic like an RPG, you'd be surprised at how much like equal representation of the genders are in these games. I don't think it's as big of a deal as it was in like the 90s when I was like all dudes just playing games. Like I think there was some stat that came out a couple years ago that was like 45% of all mobile gamers are female. Something like that. So that's pretty significant, right? It's good. Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm hardcore, yeah. Yeah. 4,500 plus, Okay. have to time to okay. uh, Just to add on that also, um, your genre, your brand, your IP is really going kind to of skew your demographic for a game. Yeah. Um, instead of trying to enjoy yourself to get girls, in game, go tell what your demographic, what your average demographic is, and, and make the game for that audience, because otherwise you're kind of chasing an ad, you're, you're not really, you shouldn't be trying to get 50-50, you trying to get the best users for your best game. Well said. Last question. All right, I'm it a good one. Okay, great, no uh, pressure. So uh, yeah, no pressure. Um, you rely on data for a lot of things. As a product manager, do you use uh, telemetry data in your requirements, or do you, is that something that's given to you from engineers? And, uh... That's a good question. So the question is the data analysis, telemetry data. So essentially, how is the data being sent to the various clients, including your third-party analytics software? Is that defined by you or defined by engineering? Both. So this is really important. So when when you are defining these analytics, you really have to be lockstep with your engineers to, you know, they're going to be building essentially clash of clans and you need to be right over their shoulder being like, I want to measure this, 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 to measure this because they're going to, you know, in your case, I don't know what his name is with the glasses, but I said, you know, you're a smart guy, you're building the, the data, like you said, but like, Product guidance would be appreciated, right? Like, what like you would like to have some sort of guidance as to like what I want to build for the data support, right? Sure. Cool. Of yep. So it's a, it's it's a collaboration, definitely. product got to be involved in that. All right. Let's give Matt a round of applause.